to hear God's word being read and sung. We are uh, working our way through First Corinthians, uh, sorry, Second Corinthians. Make sure I get that right. Uh, and as I said last week, we're in the uh, the, the the heart of uh, the theological heart of Paul's uh, letter here, uh, really giving the foundation for life and ministry uh, in the gospel. And we're told that we have a, a treasure in jars of clay. Quite a profound statement which we'll dig into. What's the treasure we have? Well, it's the gospel. But the gospel is much more than simply a message. It's more than just a collection of words. In verse 5, Paul said, what we proclaim is Jesus Christ as Lord. We proclaim not an idea, we proclaim a person, the Lord Jesus. Sometimes the way the gospel can be presented is as if it's just simply a means to get to heaven when I die. And so it comes down to my ability to understand the words that are spoken or my willingness to uh, respond to the call, to obey the gospel by repenting and believing. But if it's just that then the gospel is just like a mechanism to achieve something. It's like just putting a key in a lock and turning it to open the door. There's no question that the gospel does have content. It has words that need to be understood by the mind. And the gospel does have built into it the call of God to repent and believe But our capacity to understand the truth of the words and the willingness of our heart to repent and believe are both gifts of God. It's not something we find within ourselves. They're initiated by him. They are worked in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you know the truth of Jesus... It's got nothing to do with your level of your IQ. And if in your heart you are warm towards God and if you believe truly that Jesus is your Saviour, it's not because of any inherent goodness within yourself. See verse 6. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God has come to us because God has shone it into our hearts. We don't come to know him because we've sought him and found him. There's no one who seeks God out of their own desire or their own motivation. Left to ourselves, we don't have the capacity or even the desire to know God. At the back of this building there's an instant hot water service 
and I bet she's smiling, but I can't see because she's wearing a mask at the moment. Uh, and it's been a bit of a um, sticking point because it's not working properly. So we go to fill up the sink with hot water and there's nothing coming out. The way that this hot water service works is that there's a tiny flame in there called the pilot light. It's burning all the time and when you turn on the tap that releases a flow of gas which then ignites the whole system and heats the water. The problem is that the pilot light on this system doesn't work. Well sometimes it does but often it's not there. No matter how much we try we can't ignite it. So without that little pilot light the whole system is dead and the water is stone cold. Now, modern spirituality tells us that we all have within ourselves a little pilot light, a divine spark. All we need to do is look in ourselves and find the light and activate it. But the reality is we're all like that broken water heater. Spiritually, we're defunct, we're broken, we don't even have a pilot light. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in us, we have nothing in us apart from darkness. We can't become a Christian by making a decision or a commitment or trying really hard to believe. We can no more do that then we could contribute to our conception and our birth. So we need God to shine into our hearts the knowledge of his glory. And it's a glory that we see in the face of Jesus Christ. It's a glory that's deeply personal, deeply relational, because it's displayed clearly in the face of a person, of Jesus. Salvation isn't a thing, it's not a concept or a methodology. Salvation is a person. The glory of God isn't so much an attribute or a characteristic of God, the glory of God is the sum total of all that he is. The Old Testament word for glory means literally weight or heaviness. Glory is all of God's attributes together in perfect unity, shining forth as a display of the totality of all of his goodness and his righteousness and his holiness and his truth and his love. So in Jesus Christ... God, in all of his glory, comes to dwell in a person. The Spirit gives us the gift of faith to to enable us to see Jesus and to know him and so trust him as our only hope. It's the Spirit who enables us as citizens of the kingdom to cry out, Jesus is Lord. And it's the Spirit who enables us as members of the family to cry out, Abba Father. That's what makes the gospel a treasure. Or more accurately, a treasury 
The Greek word here for treasure is thesaurus. Now we all know what a thesaurus is, right? It's a book, a book of synonyms. That's what we think of when we hear that word. But the reason a thesaurus is called a thesaurus is because it's a treasury of words. It contains a lot of words, but not only that, it shows us all of the nuances and the riches and the illusions and the meanings and the uses of each word. Because God himself is the gospel, we can't be like that person I mentioned last week who who thought that they had all that they needed because they went to a Christian school when they were a child. That would be like saying, well, I read a book once in grade four, so I no longer need to learn anything else about the English language. A language is in some sense inexhaustible, isn't it? We keep learning, we keep discovering more of the language that we've been speaking since we were children. Well, even more so, the glory of God. Jesus said in Matthew 13 to his disciples, have you understood all these things, everything he's been telling them? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure, his thesaurus, what is new and what is old. This master here is a a wealthy man. His treasury contains old and new treasure. It contains that which he's been able to store up over time, the old treasure and the new treasure that he's only just acquired. And he's so wealthy that he can bring it out of his treasury and share it freely with others. This is how Jesus wanted his disciples to see themselves as they went about the work of proclaiming the gospel. Because as they proclaim Jesus, we're proclaiming the one who is the ultimate master of the house. Jesus is the one who has brought out of the treasury of his father the riches of his grace and he freely shares it with us. So in Jesus Christ we see this uh, multifaceted, rich treasure of God, of the glory of God. God who is both one in being and three in persons. God who is both eternal and exalted beyond the creation but also ever-present and close to us so that in him we live and move and have our being. The God who is holy and just and also full of mercy and grace and slow to anger. God who by his own nature cannot suffer and die but the God who has taken on himself human nature so that he may go to the cross and suffer and die for us. 
This is the God whose sovereign plan has been set by eternal decree from before the foundation of the world. And he's the God who listens to his people when they pray and he acts in response to their humble requests. I could go on and on. We could go on for eternity. In fact, we will go on for eternity declaring and praising God for his glory out of his treasury. Verse 7 tells us, we have this treasure, this treasury of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. We have it in jars of clay, earthenware pots, household utensils used for storing flour or for going down to the well and collecting water, even disposing of waste. A clay pot, a clay vessel or or jar was was designed for its usefulness, not for display. It was made from, not from durable metal like gold or silver or bronze, but of frail, breakable clay. What rich imagery that is. The glory of God in a clay pot. Human beings were made from the dust. We are vessels of clay. As such, we're very much part of this creation and we're very much mortal. Without the life-giving breath of God, we return to the dust from which we were made. Now this aspect of humanity isn't something that happened just because of sin. What changed with the entrance of sin into the world was that God said in Genesis 6, my spirit shall not abide in human beings forever for he is flesh. Even in the goodness of creation, We're clay. We are 100% dependent on the ongoing life-giving presence of God. So to be called a jar of clay is not an ignoble thing. It's not a derogatory term. It's simply to be called exactly what we are, creatures, utterly dependent on the life of God. On one hand, knowing our, our intrinsic mortality as dusty creatures, on the other hand, knowing the, the wonder and the security of God's grace that he would call us his children and come to dwell in us by his spirit. The hope of knowing that the day will come when this dusty flesh and bone will not only be indwelt by the spirit, but it will also be clothed with immortality, the immortality of the risen Jesus, securing us for eternal life in the presence of God. So this is the the frame of mind, the frame of heart that comes from knowing God's grace to us. And it's the frame of mind that enables us then to echo 
the, the words of verses 8 to 10. Being afflicted, perplexed, persecuted and struck down. Well, that displays our dustiness, our clayness as we carry about in our bodies the death of Jesus who came and shared in our mortality. But the fact that we are not ultimately crushed, that we are not driven to despair, that we're not forsaken or destroyed, well that's a display of the surpassing power of God. The power of God that was demonstrated when he raised the mortal, crucified, buried body of Jesus from the dead, never to die again. Behind the sentiment of this whole passage is Psalm 116 and Paul quotes it there in verse 13. But it will be helpful for us to just see that whole psalm in its entirety to understand the context and why Paul just quotes that one phrase from it. Psalm 116, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts, uh, precious is in the sight of the Lord is the death, I know, I've read that. There, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. So there were the verses that Paul quoted. I believed even when I spoke. And what are the words that the psalmist speaks? I am greatly afflicted and all mankind are liars. The circumstances of life cause us to cry out at our own state and to to lose faith in human beings with all of their empty promises, all of humanity's duplicity. But do you remember the Hebrew word for believe? I talked about it a week or so ago. The Hebrew word for believe is amen. Remember we saw, like Abraham, we utter amen to God 
cry of implicit childlike trust that he's working all things together for our good and his glory. Jesus is glorified in us not when we live happy, prosperous, victorious, problem-free lives, but when in our weakness we say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When we look at our affliction and we're able to say with our passage, our affliction is light and momentary because we know that the Father has a purpose in every single thing that happens to us, good and bad. And that purpose is to transform us from one degree of glory to another, to make us more like Jesus. The Father's goal for his children is that we would be bearers of an eternal weight of glory there in verse 17. Think about that statement for a moment. An eternal weight of glory that's beyond comparison. Think of how absurd, how extremely absurd that would be apart from the grace of God to us. He has in store for us in the treasury of his household, a weight of glory. Remember, the Hebrew word for glory means weight. So he's actually saying here, in effect, a glorious glory or glory upon glory or glory multiplied by glory. The weight of glory, then, this glorious glory, is eternal. Now that's a term that's normally used of God himself. He alone is eternal. He alone is immortal, existing from eternity past into eternity future. And by contrast, we came into existence at a point in time. And apart from the ongoing work of God to sustain us, we would cease to exist. So this eternal, glorious glory is the glory of God himself. The Father's goal for us is that we might be bearers of the full glory of God. But how can mere clay jars bear the weight of such glory. How could it be? God said to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. So how can it be that we're told that we will ultimately see God with unveiled faces and live? Well, only if he makes us like Jesus. Just as the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus, his plan that we will be made like Jesus so that one day the glory of God will be seen in our faces too because we'll be like him. 
But in order to be made like Jesus, we must be taken through the same path as him. It was through humility, through obedience, through service, through the suffering of the cross that he was brought to that place of glory at the right hand of the Father. At the cross he bore an eternal weight of suffering under God's wrath for us in order that our suffering might only be light and momentary in comparison. But nevertheless, our light and momentary suffering, our afflictions, our troubles in this life, it's still a necessary trajectory on the path to glory. If we are to be like Jesus in his resurrection, we also must be like him in his suffering and death. Now, suffering in this life is inevitable. No one is exempt from suffering. No matter how privileged, no matter how comfortable our lives are, we will suffer. Even if it's simply the suffering that will reach the end of our life and we will physically die. So the question isn't, will you suffer? The question is, when you do suffer, will you see in your sufferings an identification with Jesus? And if so, will you have, even in the midst of that affliction, a hope in the resurrection because Jesus who suffered and died is also the Jesus who was raised up in glory. So Paul uses then this analogy of a tent and a building to help us understand this relationship between the suffering of this life and the glory that is to come. Now, Paul uh, got this analogy. He understood this analogy because he was a tent maker by trade. But so would a Jew understand it and anyone who knew the story of the Jews because for 40 years the, the Jews, the Israelites, lived in tents as they were nomads in the wilderness before they finally got to settle in the promised land. The Jews would commemorate this uh, wandering, living in tents, every year in the festival of booths or the festival of tabernacles. They would move out of their houses for a week and they would live in tents made of branches and palm fronds. It was the uh, most joyous of the Jewish annual festivals. Uh, It marked the final intake of the harvest in autumn. But it was joyous also because they remembered the Lord's faithful provision of them over those 40 years as they wandered and lived in tents. Because during this time of wandering, God himself dwelt in a tent in the tabernacle. He moved around with them and among them, his people. And it was only after they had settled in the promised land 
after the kingship had been established in David that he finally gave permission for a permanent house for him to make his dwelling among his people in the temple in Jerusalem. Now the imagery in all of that, that's that uh, story of the wilderness wandering and, uh, and the celebration of the, the festival of booze, it, it all points to Jesus. The Son of God came and he made his dwelling with us in the tent of a mortal human fleshly body made from the dust just like us. He shared in our wandering, he shared in our longing for a more permanent home that would be free from the weaknesses and the sufferings of this world. He said to his disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. In my father's house there are many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. The place isn't a geographical place, it's a place of status in the father's household, a permanent room in his home. Now, just as the Israelites longed for the rest that they would know when they entered the promised land, we wait for the full Sabbath rest when he makes all things new, renews creation and the tent of this mortal perishable body will be replaced with an immortal imperishable body. Even more wonderful though than us having immortal bodies is that we will see face to face the glorious immortal Jesus still in human flesh, still with his feet walking this earth but making his permanent home with us. Jesus' death and resurrection coincided with the Passover festival when they remembered the sacrificial Passover lamb that marked the beginning of their journey out of Egypt. It also was the first fruits festival, the beginning of the harvest. So Jesus was raised from the dead after being the Passover lamb. He was raised as the first fruits of our resurrection. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit occurred at the festival of Pentecost 50 days later. Pentecost was the beginning of the full harvest. And it's at Pentecost then we see the gospel going out to the world and people being brought in to the kingdom of God. Pentecost also reminded them or they commemorated the giving of the law at Sinai which was Israel's first stop after leaving Egypt. After Pentecost, the next festival was the Trumpets which the Jews currently celebrate as the New Year, the civil New Year. But intriguingly, the Bible doesn't actually give an explanation for this festival. It just says, observe the festival where you blow the trumpets. 
Jesus has given meaning to this festival because it symbolises the day when Jesus will return with, as 1 Thessalonians 4 describes it, the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And then after that comes the festival of booths, a reminder that God dwells with his people, never to leave them or forsake them again. Now all of this then is behind Paul's tent building analogy. What we see and what we know is temporary, even though it is all that we can see. But what we cannot see apart from the eyes of faith, that's what is eternal and permanent. Life now in the body means weakness and affliction, but the solution isn't to discard the body because, as verse 4 says, we, uh, if we discarded the body, we would be unclothed, we would be naked. The answer isn't to escape the physical life and live in the spiritual, but, as he says, to be further clothed by something much more substantial, our resurrection bodies. Now see how the gift of the Spirit verse 5, the gift of the Spirit is the guarantee of all of this. Not just the guarantee of what is to come but the guarantee of God being at work in us here and now in our mortal tents of our bodies. See, the Holy Spirit doesn't take us to another otherworldly spiritual realm. The Holy Spirit grounds our feet in creation through Christ restoring us to be rulers of the earth under him. The Spirit doesn't detach us from life's realities. The Spirit leads us, the Spirit empowers us to participate in the mission of Christ as we uh, proclaim the gospel, as we walk in love even in the midst of persecution or suffering. He gives gifts to the church to enable us to serve and to love one another in the here and now. Gifts which enable us to uh, journey together towards that permanent home that we look forward to. So as we do that, as we love one another, as we proclaim the gospel, as we long for our heavenly permanent home, we need to hold lightly onto the things of this world that might tempt us to become too settled to content. All the stuff that we're told all the time we need to buy, we need to invest in, all these things that we need to secure our happiness and our wholeness. Now pursuing those things isn't wrong in itself. The the problem comes when the things that we possess possess us. When they get such a grip on our hearts that we stop living 
by faith in what cannot be seen and instead we live by faith in what we can see. The Spirit gives us a security in Christ coupled with a confidence in the Father's sovereign plan and so we should be able to say with verse 6 we are always of good courage. If our physical affliction leads to physical death, well, so what? We'll then be with Christ, which is far better. If we live on through our affliction, well, so what? We have the Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance. We have a hope that will never disappoint. So we can press on serving the living God and seeking to please him, as we see in verse 9 there. While we long for the permanent, immortal home that is to come with the new heavens and the new earth, we're called to live faithfully right now in light of his faithfulness knowing that it will be in his timing that the, the wilderness wandering will be replaced by the promised land. Let's pray.